I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to The Dose. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Just a note, since we recorded this podcast, Health Canada has approved the use of the Pfizer vaccine in kids 12 to 15 years old. Something to keep in mind as you listen. While vaccinating this age group will likely not happen soon, kids and immunity are a key factor in ending this pandemic, as you'll hear. Today, we're talking about COVID-19 and herd immunity. Hi, Catherine. Hello there. Pleased to be with you, Brian. Pleased to be with you, too. Uh, Where are you right now? I'm in southern Quebec in the eastern townships. Oh, I envy you. What's the weather like there? Uh, Gray, (laughs) but uh, relatively mild. Now, my producer said you were listening to spring peeper frogs the other day. I was, in fact, every night. (laughs) It is a lullaby. It puts me to sleep at night. My name is Catherine Hankins. I'm the co-chair of Canada's COVID-19 Immunity Task Force, and I'm a professor of public and population health at McGill University in our School of Population and Global Health. I'm going to ask you for a favor for our purposes. Can you define herd immunity? Well, herd immunity is actually a mathematical idea. It's from infectious disease modeling. It assumes that every person has an equal chance of meeting every other person, and that if you got to a certain level of immunity, both from uh, having had the infection or having had a vaccine, that the virus would basically have nowhere to go. So when it comes to COVID, do we know what the threshold is for herd immunity? Well, you know, from the beginning, people spoke about a 60 to 70% immunity. So that's a combination of infection acquired and vaccine induced immunity in the population. But there's a lot of problems with that. The new variants, some of them have a 60% higher likelihood of transmission. That's a problem. Then that led to estimates for herd immunity going as high as 80%. And then when you look at the fact that 20% of the Canadian population is below 18 and they're not currently having access to vaccines for the most part, that would imply you're going to have to get up to 90-95% coverage for vaccines in the in the older population if we're going to reach that level of herd immunity. And then we don't know about waning immunity, both from natural infection, how long does the protection last, and from vaccine-induced uh, antibodies, how long are they going to last? How long is that protection? So I think there's starting to be some real questioning about the whole idea of herd immunity being the way that we're going to get out of this. Certainly, as a theoretical concept, vaccination rates are obviously key to herd immunity because we don't want the we don't want a lot of people to get COVID-19 because they could potentially die of it. Now, earlier this week, the vice chair of Canada's National Advisory Committee on Immunization, NACI, said that the mRNA vaccines uh, like Pfizer and Moderna 
are, quote, preferred, that was a direct quote, uh, because of the small risk of blood clots that do occur with the AstraZeneca vaccine and the one-dose Johnson & Johnson vaccine and do not appear to occur with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. This comes after months of public health officials telling people to get the first vaccine they're offered. So what's the danger if people wait to pick and choose a vaccine? I think, you know, what NASI was trying to say is that you have to judge your own risk. And if you're in a high transmission area, just go and get whatever you can get immediately. I mean, personally, I think it's a bit confusing to people and they're wondering now, what do I do and who do I talk to about this? I'm still very much someone who would say, get whatever you're offered when it's offered to your age group in your situation. Don't wait. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Vaccination is going to be really key, um, not so much, I think, to achieving this idea of herd immunity, but to stopping transmission. And it's through transmission that we get these new variants. And for the moment, our vaccines are holding against the new variants. But I think we're going to see if transmission keeps going the way that it's going in different parts of the world and even in parts of our own country. We're going to see new variants that the vaccines will not address well. And then we're really going to be chasing our tail. So to, to pin you down a little bit here, because this is the question of the week, I can tell you the people I, I'm talking to are quite confused by this seeming flip-flop in messaging by the National Advisory Committee on Immunization. So what would you tell someone today being offered the AstraZeneca or Johnson & Johnson vaccines? I would say take it. <laughs> that's my advice is take it. When I went, I didn't know what I was going to get because that's the advice. Take what you're offered. And in the end, I personally got Pfizer. I mean, I would like to get AstraZeneca for my second dose. And that's because I have this idea in my head, it's not based on anything, that I'd get a broader immune response. There is a trial going on in the UK right now that should report by about June and give an idea about mixing and matching vaccines that might be able to then tell me, okay, so when my turn comes in July for the second dose, Should I be getting a second Pfizer or should I get an AstraZeneca dose? I I take your point that we're waiting for for data from a study that may be released later this month, if not then early June. What do we actually know about whether we can get one dose of one vaccine and another dose of another vaccine? We don't know. We don't know. And that's why for the moment, the recommendations are stay with what you got for your first vaccine. That's what you should have for the second. It acts like a prime and then a boost. So it's good. And we know the results from both individual level studies and from population-based studies. What are the effects after first dose? What are the effects after second dose in terms of protection? I think what's really exciting, however, this week is to look at the results from one dose because Canada has a very pragmatic first doses fast strategy, as you know, where we're basically saying go out as far as 16 weeks between the first and the second doses so that we can get more doses, more first doses into more people and reduce transmission. The trial showed us the effects of these vaccines on severe disease and on hospitalizations and deaths. But now we know that we've got protection from infection There's a study in the U.S. that was showing a 90% for full immunization, 80% after one dose of protection from infection. 
It's about 70% protection from infection after one dose of AstraZeneca. And then the exciting news this week came from the UK is a household study of 24,000 households that had a COVID case. And they looked at the secondary attack rate in those households, depending on whether the COVID case was someone who'd had one dose of vaccine or had not been vaccinated. And it was 40 to 50% lower if the person had had a vaccine. So this tells us, get your first dose, whatever it is, get it in you because it's gonna protect you from severe disease and from infection. And it's gonna prevent, if you do get infected, it's gonna prevent you, reduce your risk of transferring the virus to somebody that you live with who's in close proximity to you. So there's kind of a double reason to get out there and get that first dose now. So do you mind, just just for, for the uninitiated uh, among our many subscribers, um, can you define secondary attack rate? Yeah, so the secondary attack rate would be uh, you have an index case. How many other people does that person infect? And when you look at households, you're looking at people who are in very close proximity And so what is the chance that you're going to pass the virus on to your partner, your children, your parents, whoever's in that household with you? You mentioned and I think you you basically endorsed Canada's strategy to delay the second dose uh, of the two dose vaccines. So in, in, in numbers, what can you say about how well that strategy is working? I believe that it's working well because I think we're getting more people are getting access to the vaccine. If you just look at the modeling, it shows that getting more first doses to more people will reduce transmission in the population faster than giving two doses to a more select group of people. So we're getting an advance on the interruption of transmission. And as I mentioned before, every single infection that's prevented is one less chance for the virus to mutate. Vaccines led to herd immunity for measles and polio. When it came to COVID last year, there was talk in Sweden about achieving herd immunity from COVID naturally by becoming infected with COVID. Why was that a bad idea? Well, it's a bad idea, first of all, because you're letting a virus rip through your population when you know you have vulnerable people that are going to get severely ill, hospitalized and die, number one. So morally and ethically, I don't think that's the way to go. And then secondly, it's not like measles or chickenpox. It's not a lifelong immunity after natural infection. Uh, Immunity wanes and needs to be boosted, ideally with a vaccine. So I think the whole idea of, you know, somehow reaching some kind of level of population level immunity by just letting her rip is uh, inappropriate and, and not effective. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be back in a moment. Catherine, why do we, you know, how is it that we know that that immunity to COVID wanes uh, when, when, COVID-19 has only been around for uh, about a year and a half. You're asking an excellent question. So initially it was because we found that some of our serological tests were not detecting antibody out three, four, six months in some people. And we wondered what was going on. We're seeing some breakthrough infections now. And breakthrough infections are being studied right across Canada. And by breakthrough infections, I mean 
infections that occur in someone who had a proven case of COVID in the past and breakthrough infections refer to people who get an infection despite having had the COVID vaccine. So we want to look at breakthrough infections to see, is there something different about those viruses? Is it a variant? Are variants getting through our barriers? So we live in a global community where there are other countries that I think, I think I've heard that there are maybe 30 nations that have had zero vaccines to this point in time uh, against COVID. Are there any other reasons why the whole herd immunity concept needs to be rethought when it comes to COVID-19? Kids, kids, we don't have immunization programs for children and they make up up to 20% of our population. We're going to have ongoing transmission as long as we have also children not included in our immunization. So we've got too many things happening. I think we need to be thinking more about, can we get this infection down to a level where it's become kind of maybe endemic, maybe seasonal. And I think we will see masking certainly in wintertime, indoors, in venues. I can see that happening for maybe several years to come. Thinking about how can we take advantage of summer and being outside and getting as much sunshine as we can, but then also preparing for what potentially could be the next wave. Is there a way that we could... Um, see if we can roll out our immunization programs to high school kids before September? I don't know. I think we should be thinking about how we can learn to live with this in as safe a way as possible. So it's not going to be one and done. We're past this. We can just go back into pretending that we're not at risk of global pandemics. Well, exactly. You know, and I think with the whole herd immunity concept, people somehow thought there was kind of a threshold and there were, there were people who were saying, well, I'm not going to get the vaccine. I'm going to wait for herd immunity is going to protect me. <laughs> I think we have to tell people, look, you know, for yourself and for your loved ones, at a minimum for those two, you know, get the vaccine and get it now. You know, there are some people that say that this is the beginning of the age of pandemics, that if we look at the climate crisis and how it's contributing to the development of zoonoses, which are infections that jump species into humans where we have had no knowledge of the virus before, um, we're gonna have more zoonoses. And so we need to be doing pandemic preparedness as we're trying to deal with this pandemic and get this one under wraps as best we can. We need to be thinking about what systems need strengthening? Healthcare systems, information systems, laboratory systems, manufacturing. There's just a whole bunch of things we need to be thinking about to prepare for moving forward uh, in what is a new world. So what do you say to people who might panic at hearing that we're not going to be able to achieve herd immunity? I would say to them, you know, don't panic. Let's try to figure out how to do this as fairly and equitably as we can. There are things that we're doing now and that we're doing well uh, that we can keep on doing. There are other things that we don't want to do any longer than we absolutely have to. You know, um, <laughs> one of my daughters absolutely wants to go to a big concert in a crowded venue <laughs> as soon as she can. You know, so we want to see where can we get back to doing the things we really want to do and how can we do it safely to protect everybody. And I can tell you vaccination 
is the key to this at this point in time. We need to get our vaccination rates up as high as we possibly can. And just to make this perfectly clear, you know, as uh, at least some Canadians look with great envy at countries like Israel and New Zealand, where they've had mass concerts with 50,000 people or more, that whatever's going on in those countries, there's no guarantee with COVID-19 and variants of concern that they're going to be able to continue having outdoor concerts of, of, of those sizes without being really vigilant about what's coming next. Well, you raised New Zealand. That's a good example where they don't have herd immunity. They don't at all. But what they have is case detection, test and trace, quarantine, isolate, jump on things right away. That's what Australia did as well. Israel's gone the other way of doing, you know, mass vaccination programs, uh, which has raised the immunity level of the population. And they're starting to experiment now with opening different things and seeing how that goes. Now, we are not in a position at this point, I think, to aim for an Australia or a New Zealand situation, but we can certainly ramp up our vaccination to get a higher level of immunity in the population and begin to be able to do some things we so enjoy doing together as soon as we can. So uh, if I can pin you down on this one, when do you think we're going to get there? I think people are pining for some semblance of normal. What's your time frame? Uh, it's a difficult thing to estimate because I want to be really optimistic. I really, really want us to have a summer, you know, a little bit like last summer where we got down to lower numbers and people were out and about and enjoying our Canadian summer. I'm a bit concerned about our situation right now. We're in May and we're not on top of it in a number of different provinces. And I think we need to be very careful that we don't lose our summer because we're not really buckling down now. I would love to see something where we are able to start immunizing our high school students so that when they can come back in September, they can come back to live school. It's not going to be, as I think Tony Fauci said, it's not like turning a light switch on and off. It's not like we're going to reach some kind of herd immunity threshold and now everything's going to be fine. We're going to be living with this for many years to come. And so we've got to figure out how to do it in a way that keeps our hospitalizations, our severe disease down and allows us to open up and have as much as we want of the kind of life we had before, but as safely as possible. And that can include things like, you know, we may end up wearing masks indoors in crowded venues for several years. I just, I mean, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but because what I think is so exciting this week, we didn't know whether vaccines would stop infection. We didn't know you'd be protected from like asymptomatic infection. You know, it was all the trials were powered to look at with severe disease and death. So we've learned that the vaccines actually reduce your chances of infection. And now we've learned that the vaccines actually reduce your chances of passing on the infection to someone else if you do get infected. These are really encouraging positive findings. There are people, just to tell you, I think people are hiding behind. They're somehow believing that if we can just get to herd immunity, it's going to be all over. And I think we need to be a bit more reflective and serious about the situation and understand that that's not going to be the way out. 
high vaccination levels are going to get us out of here. Well, you know, Catherine Hankins, you've given me, you've given us uh, some reason to hope and, and, and certainly a s- strong message to be, to continue to be vigilant and the things we have to do to get what we really want. Uh, so thank you so much for providing the, the scientific basis for that, talking about herd immunity and, and why it's a concept that's being reevaluated and what the near future is likely to look like. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Dr. Catherine Hankins is co-chair of Canada's COVID-19 Immunity Task Force and a professor of public and population health at McGill University in Montreal. Here's your dose of smart advice. There's less talk these days about herd immunity from COVID for several reasons. First, kids who make up 20% of the population can't be vaccinated until ongoing studies show that the vaccines are effective and safe in that age group. Second, unlike measles, immunity from vaccines or from getting COVID wanes over time. Third, new variants of concern that come especially from countries with low vaccination rates may be able to infect people who have gotten and recovered from COVID or who have been vaccinated. But there is good news, and that is that COVID vaccines reduce your personal risk by preventing you from getting COVID and from getting seriously ill from COVID. So the key to reducing COVID-19 in Canada is to vaccinate as many people as possible. So take the first COVID vaccine you can get. We'll know from studies how safe and effective it is to mix and match vaccines from different companies. Vaccines will get us to a semblance of normal in the coming months, but we'll likely need to take boosters and be vigilant to new variants for months and even years. If you have topics you'd like to hear on The Dose or questions you'd like answered, email us at thedose at cbc.ca. You can also tweet me at NightShiftMD or at CBCWhiteCoat using the hashtag TheDoseCBC. You can find The Dose and White Coat Black Art wherever you get your podcasts. Please do us a favor and rate our shows highly so more people can find us. This edition of The Dose was produced by Willow Smith with digital support from Fabiola Carletti. Thanks to Brittany Amadeo for technical support. The Dose wants you to be better informed about your health, but if you're looking for medical advice, see your healthcare provider. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Until your next dose. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.